Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of the Teddy Talk Podcast. Hey, before I tell you about today's guest, I wanted to share a few thoughts. So, been doing this podcast for about a year now, and by the comments I'm receiving from many of you, you seem to be enjoying them every bit as much as I am. Hey, just wanted to extend my appreciation for your interest and let you know I'm committed to getting better and better at this. I continue to be delighted by many of the remarkable people I've met over the years, now being willing and eager to sit down and chat about their journey, whether it's about leadership or other interests that we mutually like to explore. So again, thanks for your support. Today, we're going to listen to a conversation with a guy named Mark Skaggs, longtime video game developer whose career has spanned the likes of Electronic Arts, Zynga, and Moonfrog. Mark and I met back in 2004 while I was doing some coaching and consulting with EA. We used to have some spirited conversations about leadership, ethically lobbying for your ideas in a corporate environment, and navigating political hotspots along the way. We recently reconnected, and I was excited to sit down with Mark and talk about his leadership journey and what he's learned along the way about leading teams, managing stress, and creating success. Let's get to it. All right. Well, good day, all. This is Teddy Tannenbaum with another edition of the Teddy Talk podcast, Meetings with Remarkable People, Lessons in Leadership and Life. Today, my guest is Mark Skaggs, and this is the first podcast I'm recording over the internet. So Mark is speaking to us from Dallas, Texas, and I am, of course, in Los Angeles. Let me tell you a little about Mark, and then we'll get him on the line here. So Mark is an award-winning video game developer, known mostly for his work creating the worldwide phenomena, Farmville and Cityville on Facebook. And if you're not familiar with it, a total of about 300 million players. It's really hard to conceive of, really. Uh, I met Mark a little earlier in his career at Electronic Arts, EA, and that's where we developed a relationship. So super cool for me to connect with Mark after a number of years. Welcome, Mark, to the Teddy Talk Podcast. Hey, how are you? I'm happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. I know when we had a, a little pre-chat uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about this, I was really excited to connect with you again because I remember the time we worked together and your interest in, you know, leadership and building teams. And we're going to get into all that. But I thought we'd start, since uh, many of our listeners might not be familiar with you and your work, maybe you can start by giving them a little bit of your background and your story. Sure. Um, let's see. So I was a military brat. My father was career Navy. So what that meant is we moved around a lot. I was in four different schools by the time I finished second grade. And that kind of influences a lot of my leadership thinking in, in some ways as he was there in the Navy until I graduated high school, actually. So, uh, but I fell in love with computers at an early age in the 80s. You know, TRS-80 uh, computer, the uh, Radio Shack computer first came out. So I love making software and that just became my thing. I studied it at a small school called RPI up in Albany. And then I got what I thought was going to be my dream job at Texas Instruments, making <laughs> software for chip designers. And I say that kind of funny because at that time, TI was about 50,000 people. And that's when I kind of learned I'm more of a small software company kind of guy. So I jumped over and started making desktop publishing software for a company called Altsys. And I don't know if people remember, but in the 90s, there was a big, late 80s, early 90s, there was a big company called Aldous Corporation that made PageMaker. Well, we made freehand for Aldous. Did that for a few years and then got my MBA. And after I got my MBA, I started a game company, which to me was just another form of software. And that's where I ran my first company for about four years, then ran out of money and went to work on Cal in California at a company called Virgin Interactive, which was part bought by EA a little later. That's where we met up. Right. I worked there for about seven years making mostly strategy games, which was my favorite at the time. And just so coincidentally, military strategy games. So, <laughs> so you, you, were, you were bringing forward some of your early childhood experiences. Yeah. You know, referencing things like, well, that's not how it really looks on a military base, you know, and just, you know, interest in things that I'd seen growing up. You know, from there, uh, left Electronic Arts after about seven years, took a break, did another startup, small game company that didn't work out then, ended up working at a company called Zynga. And that's right when the social games on Facebook took off. So made Farmville, Cityville, a bunch of other games there. 
eventually after about seven years, and oh, by the way, my family was living in Dallas at that time, and I was commuting back and forth for about seven years. Yeah, so and you, that, you yeah. commuted uh, from Southern California for a while, and then Zig is up in Northern California. No, actually, so we lived in Southern California oh. in L.A., but the uh, after EA, moved back to Texas because we wanted to raise our kids here. And then that's where my friend Bing from EA called and said, hey, we got this thing in San Francisco. I'm like, well, I don't live there. But he's like, well, let's see how the commuting thing goes. And I'm like, sure, let's try it. And that what well, what seemed like it was going to be a year turned into about seven years. Yeah, that'll happen. <laughs> then after that, I left and went to work in India about part half time in India making mobile games here. Okay, and that, that was with uh, Moonfrog. Yeah, that was with Moonfrog. Right. Yeah. All right, so that's 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 great. Uh, great to get a little of that backstory. Uh, I'm curious. You mentioned Bing, and I've heard of him, of course. And uh, I'm yeah. also curious about some other leaders and early mentors that you had uh, that were critical to developing both your skill sets as well as your leadership persona. Sure. I think um, growing up on in a military family, military base, that whole environment there had like coaches and scoutmasters and whatnot who, who were you know, basically active servicemen at the time. And so I think I probably picked up a lot of stuff subconsciously there. Mm-hmm. But I remember going in middle school, actually, and this is funny, I've forgotten about this till I was thinking about our call today, is I would go to the library and look up leadership because I had this sort of drive and desire to know what it meant to be a leader. Um, I don't know if you remember, that was when we have to go to see the card catalog and, you know, go to the L section and look up by subject matter. And I was really disappointed because I could never find anything. And so, but I, but I had that hunger when I got out of, uh, you know, and so when that, how that hunger manifests itself, well, you know, captain of the swim team, went into college, I was a president of my fraternity and I was always trying to work out what was what listening to at the time, you know, when you'd fly in a plane, they'd always have that business channel. I'd be listening to that, trying to find leadership clues. And so for a while it was kind of organic. But then when I went to work at TI, I, my manager, a woman named Gala, um, kind of showed me what it was like to be a manager or a leader in a, in a large organization. And then when I went to work on freehand, uh, a company started by her husband, Jim, yeah, I got to see some more uh, about leadership. I think, for games, though, the key leadership learning I got was from the founders of uh, Westwood, a guy named Brett Sperry and his partner, Lewis Castle. And the, the difference there is those guys were not, um, you know, they, they came from a completely different background than I did. Kind of grew up their first game company, Westwood, organically. They had a lot of those practical kind of leadership lessons. Mm-hmm. So they taught me a lot there. Um, you know, things about opinion leaders on a team, um, how it's not just about the technical uh, process of getting stuff done, but the art of, of letting, I don't know, the, the experience evolve. Uh, and then, like you mentioned, Bing was a really big influence. I work with Bing there at EA right after Westwood got acquired and then even more at Zynga. So. Yeah. so you mentioned something like there's the technical aspects and then there's the artful aspects. I wonder if you yeah. could give us a little more flavor on that. Uh, you know, when you go to the library and you look at the card catalog and the Dewey Decimal System and you try to figure out, okay, what's what's there? I can imagine at that time uh, there may have been a dearth. Now, there was nothing. Right. Yeah. Now, now you could do a search for leadership and you could be overwhelmed for days and days Absolutely. and days. Right? So, yeah. and of course, like everything else, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's really useful and there's stuff that's probably not so useful. It's like... Uh, people, people tell me all the time, I learn as much from having a bad manager as from having a good manager, right? I'm curious in in your early experience, you talked about that, the, the, uh, the science and the, and the art as it were, I'm curious about the artful part. What were some of the things that you noticed, the nuances that you noticed about, let's say building a team? Yeah. You know, so you said coming from a programmer background with a military family kind of history, um, to me, it was a lot. There's a lot of black and white. You write down the list of things you need to do. You write down how long it's going to take. You get them done. You sign it off. You move on to the next task. But when I started dealing with um, artists in the game business, what I realized is it's very difficult to schedule creativity, and it's very difficult to be able to say, "Okay, you're going to have three piece, pieces of great 
uh, design done in a week because you might get zero or you might get 10, right? So it's a matter of, uh, and that's where it, it, it kind of turns from a technical game to a people-oriented game and getting to know people, getting to know, you know, what's important to them, how to, how can they be inspired? Um, and that idea that, you know, as a, as a, as a hard driving technical manager, I could actually make it worse for them in terms of trying to get their work done by, I don't know, checking in too many, too many times in a day, or maybe inadvertently putting schedule pressure on them, which kind of has been proven to crush creativity a bit. So those are, those are the key ones. But, you know, I think when, when I think about building a team or structuring a team, as there's, there's a saying that I came up with is, is that I build a team, not an org chart. And, you know, I think that comes a little bit from, you know, after school, I was in a band for a while. We played a couple of gigs around Dallas. And you don't want to, when you have a set of musicians and they gel, have you ever seen that? And everything oh, just yeah. flows. Yeah. Well, I've seen the same thing with game teams and, and teams in general, because we had some, you know, teams were making desktop publishing software that were just great. Um, but it's kind of like a collective team flow. And the only way I know how to get that or the, well, the fastest way I know how to get that is to put a lot of emphasis on, on, on the hiring part is when you bring somebody in, you make sure they, they, their skills and talents, um, it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. The, every puzzle piece is different, but they all got to fit together. And so rather than kind of looking at like an org chart, which is very structured, you know, artist number one here, artist number two here, designer number one here, and these are the tasks we want them to do. I kind of look at it more organically, like, okay, this artist is great, but they also have some great design ideas. So yeah, this will be good. But does that work with the designer that we already have on board? Yes, it does. They like design ideas coming from artists and we put it together that way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's organic, but it's also, yeah. uh, I don't want to say it, pra- practical. Yeah. No, I get, I get the, the yin and yang of it together makes it work. It's, it's very, yeah. very compelling, actually. A couple of things you said stuck with me. The uh, thing about legislating or scheduling creativity. Yeah, I've had some experience with that myself, and sometimes uh, nine to five is not always the most creative time. Right? No. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, you, you get someone in there at a job, and you got a structure, and you got a process, you got systems, and then you say, okay, now you know, be creative. It doesn't always work that way. So the flexibility that you have to have. It's not like a typical manufacturing or factory situation where you've got a whole right. flow chart and this has to happen yep. and this happens and this happens. We'll get into a little bit more later uh, about the actual production of a game because I, I remember observing you and the team at EA. So I have some, some questions, thoughts about that. Sure. But this idea of how do, you, uh, how do you schedule creativity or how do you not schedule creativity, allow for that to happen, that's very provocative. The other part is... Uh, the, the dynamic of the jigsaw puzzle, right? Unlike yeah. unlike other more traditional companies, where you hire uh, for a long term situation, my sense is in the games and, and check me on this is that you've got a particular game like you built Command and Conquer, right? At EA, yeah, Command and Conquer Generals and Red Alert Two, right. yeah, and that was a, again military theme thing. So when, when yep. you look to put that team together. Are you looking to put that team together just for that particular game, for that delivery, and then that team disbands, or is that same team going to work on another project? Right. You know, that's a that's a really key observation there. Um, for every team I built, I build it, and I one of the key questions is, you know, when we're hiring for um, our strategy game team, there we start with Red Alert Two and then went on to Generals. Mm-hmm. With Red Alert Two, is really simple. It's just, do you like strategy games? Yes. Okay. We can talk more. No. We're not your team. Do you like military-based strategy games? Yes. Okay, come on. Um, and to that was the point. Right in that pe- period of time with Red Alert 2 in generals, we did have one core team that we moved to that other project. Uh, that's because we liked working together. But um, it's also at the time, you know, the game industry is, I don't know, it was more you join a studio and you, you kind of follow the fate of that studio, and that kind of determines your career j- trajectory. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, at some point, we're going to have to switch to kind of a project-based thinking, a little bit like film and TV, because especially in a large company, you know, they might want, you know, say, okay, make a strategy game on the PC. But then for whatever reasons or fortunes, 
the industry changes and strategy games kind of go out of style. Now everybody wants a first person shooter game and it's on a console. Different skill sets, different interests, different art styles. It's kind of hard to take someone who's interested in modern military hardware in a strategy game, top-down view, and convert them into a first-person fantasy world, um, you know, elves and orcs type of art style. Right? And so I started thinking that it's going to have to shift more more to that direction. And, and it has to, to a degree over the years because people are a lot more mobile. There's more game companies around, more opportunities. Um, but it, has, it quite hasn't gone as far as like TV and, and films where they're hiring for a show or for a production. So, so you might have a core group of guys and gals who they have the flexibility, adaptability, interest, in a sense, yeah, right, uh, yeah, to uh, to to adapt to whatever the, the particular game uh, genre is going to be, yeah. and then you bring in some specialists, you might say. Yeah, that's a, you know that's a great way to put it because engineering and producing on a game, a lot of the stuff is very similar, but when you get into the creative part. Um, and how does it feel when a knight swings his sword? Uh, or, you know, have you lived your whole life loving um, kind of swords and sorcery type of games? And then, you know, how's that going to be different if suddenly you have to deal with a guy shooting a bazooka, right? Sometimes the creativeness just doesn't, doesn't transfer. Right. Now, of course, you know, the, uh, it's, it's not a spoiler alert for me to say that uh, I've never played a video game. Right, it's just not my right. I, I, my my generation, different different deal. So I never I never right. crossed over. But I've worked, you know, I worked with Activision before the Blizzard days. I worked with Disney Interactive, Buena Vista. I worked with EA. So I, I got a great okay. dose of it. I just never got attracted to actually doing that. So it's you know just a, a little personal self disclosure here. Okay, um, <laughs> but uh, I marvel at it. I, I remember at EA. You know, when you, the, the, now again, check me on this, but one of the key milestones was you need to get a review, right? You've got a certain delivery date. You've got to produce that oh, yeah. video game. You've got to get it in the hands of the reviewers by a certain date so you get the review out so you can take advantage of the sales cycle, right? Right, right. So what I noticed was that that brought around crunch time. And, oh, right? yeah. And, and I remember, I remember one time, I don't remember which game it was, but, but there was some kind of crunch and like a hundred folks on one team were being moved from one floor to the other to work on a different game to meet a certain deadline. Was, was that typical, atypical? That, you know what? Um, I would say the crunch time is typical. Transferring team members is typical. Moving a hundred people at a time. I saw it happen, but it's a little more on the atypical side of things. Okay. Um, but you got to remember, you, you, you hit the you hit the key point there is, uh, especially back at that time, the majority of the sales in in the game industry happened between November first and like January fifteenth. So just say simple uh, November through January, right? Concentrated, of course, around Christmas. And, and when you when I say the majority, that's sixty percent of the sales of the year happen in those few months there, right? And then if you just do the linear math, that means all the rest of the months, you know, the, the nine or 10 months thereafter, get the 40% of the rest of the sales. So when you think about that, you're like, wow, that means just doing the math, it's like three to 4% a month for the rest of the year, right? And so there's a huge pressure to have your game out in time for Christmas. And of course, before that meant you had to have uh, good reviews that at the time, you know, there was some web um, Websites that talk, did reviews, but there was also a lot of still traditional media. And so they'd need a month or two lead time to write the article to get the magazine published. So if your game's coming out on November 1st, you had a lot of review kind of oriented stuff happening in August, September. Right? Yeah. So uh, so there's a certain lead time that you have to meet that. I'm, there's two things right. I'm curious about. One sure. is crunch time. When there is, well, first of all, uh, you know, th- we're recording this. We have to be recording this in the the second right. week of December. So there's a lot of people in this industry right now who are in that period of crunch time. They're in the get it done by Christmas. Although the industry is a little different now because you can release things online. Oh, by the way, the other piece of it, it was manufacturing lead time. If you're going to make a cartridge or uh, a Sony disc, you could need between, you know, four to six weeks of manufacturing time. So 
December 1st release meant you had to be done November 1st. So, but anyways, yeah, keep going. So people are in that, that frenzy period. Are we going to get it done for Christmas right. or not? So, so you've got multiple, multiple uh, milestones happening parallel. Right. right. So in crunch time, yeah. I'm, what I'm really curious about is what were the qualities you looked for in, the, in your downline of, of leaders who are on your senior team? What were the qualities you looked for in their leadership persona to manage through crunch time? Oh yeah. That's, you know, that's a great thing. First of all is people who didn't like crunch time. <laughs> that sounds paradoxical, but um, you know, uh, a lot of times, so there's, there's two reasons why you get behind on a schedule in a game. One is all team oriented. Maybe you're too ambitious with your schedule. Maybe you tried some creative ideas and it didn't work out. The other is external um, company oriented or calendar oriented, mm -hmm. right? And so in the cases, you know, I always try to find people who are great schedule managers, who knew how to help teams um, plan and hit schedules well. Um, and that, that was a key thing because, you know, there, there is a, especially back then, a lot less now, but back then there was a certain just feeling of it's inevitable. This is the way it is, right? Having come from software before that, I knew it didn't have to be that way. Right. I, when I worked at Ten Texas Instruments, you know, the idea of crunch time was non-existent. People had nine to five and right. they were gone. Right? That's just the way it was. Um, but, you know, then when you add the creativity onto it and people, you know, you get obsessed when you're working on a really great idea. Sometimes you just naturally want to work more. But so first step is people who go, let's do great planning to avoid or minimize crunch time. The second thing is people who realized and understood both sides of the story about we've got a schedule, but we also have a team and people. Right. So as I mentioned, you know, if you take an artist and you're like, you know, you come in, storm in there and say, where's your artwork? We need it tomorrow. Right. That probably doesn't really help on their creativity. Um, at the same time, sometimes, excuse me, uh, sometimes, sometimes engineers need a little bit of a nudge. Right. They're just like, hey, uh, you're going a little too slow on this. Maybe you're thinking a little too fancy. Keep it simple. Let's just get it done. And that's a little, little easier to do that. Um, so taking care of the team is absolutely essential. Um, I mean, it's good people managers um, and people who are experts at their, at their craft, right? So we want an engineering manager who's good at engineering, an art manager who's been in the art world for a while, a design leader who knows what it's like to be tired and have to sort of uh, create, a, create a design even yeah, though you don't feel you gotta, inspired. You've got to power through it. That, that was what I observed. There's yeah. a lot of powering through. So you just touched upon yeah. something. It's also a theme that I hear a lot of is that, you know, oftentimes you get someone who's a lead designer and they're really good at design. So they are put in a position of managing or leading other designers. And now they spend all of their right. time managing other people's projects and not getting a chance to actually display their own craft. But, but it sounds right. like when you were setting this up that you wanted people who had a bit of both, that you weren't going to take them out of the design mode but they also have to be able to shepherd other people along. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, and that's a tricky thing. Cause the same thing with engineers. I mean, and I learned at TI, uh, it was great because they had the dual career path where you could be an engineer and just spend all day coding and get promoted to be at the level of divisional vice president, same benefits, same salary, and everything just as an engineer. So I kind of took that as uh, as a model and looked for people who, Number one, they had to be great at the craft, especially when we had a very small team. Um, but then I looked for people who had leadership qualities, but that didn't all, always mean that they had to be the manager. So I'd have a set of producers who could work with the lead designer and handle all the scheduling, right? And handle all the, the paperwork and, you know, uh, getting things approved, setting up meetings while the lead designer was really um, doing his craft and leading others in that same craft. This is, uh, this is what makes teamwork really so, so wonderful in my own observation. I love working with teams when they you put together various skill sets and they seem like somewhat disparate. But when the jigsaw puzzle comes together, you look at it and go, wow, look at that. It took all of this talent, all of this skill, all of this diversity, not just yeah. the skills, but diversity of thought. And then, and then your producers yep. have to say, okay, you know, how much is too much? How little is too little? How long is too long, right? Because right. sometimes there are some people who, if you give them X amount of time, they'll take X plus 10. 
right? Oh, yeah. So you got to say, wait a minute, you, you only have X amount of time. And, and for some people, right. it's like, well, I can't, I can't live with that. So there's, a, there's this whole aspect right. of suitability, right? Which is one of the themes I explore with a lot, of, a lot of the podcasts is the idea of suitability based on the premise that, you know, some of the research that some of my, uh, my colleagues and mentors have, have shared with me is that if a person enjoys about 75% of the work they're asked to do, they're three times more likely to be happy and successful in that work. So, right. So when you talk about what I call the top of the funnel, which is on the hiring process, right? If I get the right people there in the first place and I, you know, give them the resources, obviously help remove the obstacles, then I got a better chance of success and everyone being happy in what they're doing. So it's, you know, it's been fascinating for me. My whole adult life is, is, uh, observing leadership and, and having been a leader. Uh, so it's just, uh, you know, I just enjoy talking about it. This is, this is really cool. Uh, let's, let's, um, I'm curious about producing. You mentioned the word producer. So a, a lot of times I remember yeah. hearing people talk about, you know, being a video game producer is not unlike being a TV or a film producer. I'm, I'm curious, you know, what kind of, a, what kind of similarities you might find there. So first off, I have to say, I'm not an expert at being a film or TV producer, (laughs) but I have seen some of them and I've had some interactions, especially when we had the big LA studio there. Um, But so a couple of cool stories. While I was at EA, uh, EA developed a relationship with USC Film School. Right. And, you know, we got to go there and help uh, mentor some classes. And I remember going into one classroom, it was a bunch of uh, director producers i guess you know kind of like the the guys doing their their solo films and you know small films and they were at, got to ask us any questions they wanted and one of the questions that they asked is hey when you guys have a branching storyline in a video game how do you handle writing all the dialogue and to us we're just like well you just write seven lines for each person right and to them their <laughs> mind was blown right and they're like oh we just we focus on one line you know um so my, what I pulled away from that um, was, yeah, we're we're entertainment. We're seen on a screen, but we're actually um, kind of or, uh, organized and grew up in a different way. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, when you think about film and TV, they have a camera. They have an established way of doing things that's been built since, I don't know, the 20s or something like that. Um, and it's grown up. And up until they started doing special effects like in the uh, – the ILM days, a lot of it was just, you know, very linear, not very technical oriented. And you just, you you capture the print and then you chop it up and edit to create a linear story that is centered upon the characters on the screen, you know, a passive experience for the viewers. Now in games, it's instead, it's not a passive experience. Obviously it's an active experience and the player is at the center Mm -hmm. of the universe and the player's um, and, and so what does this mean? It means the player gets to choose how things go for, you know, for better or for worse. They get to choose, you know, where to run and shoot their gun or, you know, which farm plot to build or which little candy to move in the candy crush thing. So it's very much of a kind of like a, a superset of linear narrative right. storytelling. And, but now when you step back, there are some common elements like working with creative teams having deadline schedules, you have to have a business that works. Um, and it's really the combination. I like to say it's a combination of technology, art, um, psychology, and business yeah. all coming together. And it sounds like the, the biggest distinction is that uh, the, the, the person playing the video game has a bit more control over how the flow of the thing goes, where with a film or a TV show, that story is pretty much told. Stories told, and you know, the writers and actors and everybody in the film want to evoke an emotional experience for you. And they, in a way, they're very lucky because they can line up all the dominoes ahead of time and just tick it and then it goes, right? With games, it's like, well, we try to line up the dominoes, but maybe that player's not going to be looking in the right direction, right? Or, you know, maybe, maybe in the case they just, they, they're not good. Right. And they, they don't, they don't aim very well or you know, they, they can't think what's coming fast enough. Right. So that's oh, fascinating. And, you know, there is another difference is, and it was before, you know, before Pixar really got established, I, I used to say the cool thing about film and TV is that 
the camera's already built. Uh, you know, you just go there and record stuff happening and record it on film. With games, our, our engine, game engine, was like the camera. And we had to build it again and again and again as each new generation of, of console or PC would happen. So we're always in the middle of this. We could have a great game design idea, but the technology of, you know, how does it run and what platform is it on was always changing and different for us. Wonderful. Uh, the art and science. So let's shift a little bit. Uh, you went to Zynga and you were the creative design, lead designer behind Farmville. So I only heard about Farmville. I don't know if our audience is familiar with Farmville or not, but why don't you tell us a little about that game in particular and kind of the, how it was conceived and what made it, what made it so special and attractive to people? Sure. Sure. Okay. So, um, yeah, so Facebook game. It was free to play, so you could just log into Facebook and start playing the game for free. Um, it's about farming. And what I like to say is that it's a the idealized version of farming, right? The simple stuff. Grow some crops, harvest them, take the, the crops and sell them, and you get some coins, and you can you know, plant more crops. You can build up your farm with cows and chickens and you know, buildings and whatnot. Um, so it's a very simple game. But I think there's a couple of elements that, that you know, perfect storm of such uh, uh, conditions that made it take off more than, than anybody expected, certainly more than we expected. And you know, I think it, it kind of surprised a lot of people in that, if you remember that it came out in 2009, and at that time, right, we were in, the country's in a recession, right? And so uh, it's free to play, right? So here's the first time where it's a freely access, not first time, but very early into the, the Facebook free games, free to play cycle, where you could get on and just play for free. That's a little bit different from a lot of things. So I think that's one of them. The other one is Facebook itself, right? Social networks. There was MySpace before, but, you know, there's some MySpace games, but Facebook really embraced the idea of becoming a social platform that had games on it. And what a lot of people, do, what we saw very clearly with Farmville, and we, I probably would have missed it had it not been for Farmville, but there was what I call the mom network inside of mm -hmm. Facebook, right? And I saw this with my wife who, you know, before Facebook, the end of the day, she get the kids put to bed. You know, like I say, kids are put to bed. The husband's fed. She gets some time for herself, wants to relax, maybe has a glass of wine, goes on to email to be social with her friends, right? Goes on to, and then after that, maybe plays like Tetris or something and then goes to bed. So it's a social and relaxation kind of thing going on there. Well, Farmville on top of Facebook you know, they could go onto Facebook and be social with their friends, and then they could also play a very mellow, you know, Zen type of game called Farmville, where it was just very relaxing. And it, it also had some nice compulsion loops in it, so um, it was fun to play. So I think that was the other element. And then I think summertime, right? Um, we released it right at the start of summer, so people are looking for the new kind of fun thing to do, whether out of school or out of, you know, the kids are off or whatnot. So yeah. I think that happened. So that's that's the perfect storm yeah. of, of uh, the timing in the in the culture, yeah. the timing of Facebook, the economy, yeah. the season, all of that conspired in a sense to make that very yep. super successful and popular. And yeah. then you followed up with Cityville. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which so it was they were only eighteen months apart, uh, but the environment was radically different at that point. So uh, got to go back to Farmville when we first released it. Um, there was no way to pay for anything in game when we first did it, which was a little shocking, <laughs> right. I know. But, you know, we, we released a thing in about six weeks and we put it out there. And, you know, uh, free to play microtransactions were just starting and people didn't really know what it was. So when we said, hey, would you like to buy this haunted mansion for $25, literally $25, I was even shocked when people said yes and bought that. Right. So now, shift forward 18 months. At that point, Facebook was actually saying, hey, this is really, you know, going really strong. Farmville was actually driving a lot of people to their platform. We need to make some money off it. So they started charging 30% of the revenues you earn on your game. And their, their restrictions on viral marketing, you know, I, for people who played Farmville, you know, early on it was, you know, hey, hit this button and share, uh, you know, share your farm information for somebody and they could find your lonely cow or something like that, right? <laughs> By the time we got to Cityville, much tighter restrictions, much tighter restrictions. But we still, because of the power of the game, Zynga as a company, um, and you know just the growth of Facebook around the world, that that guy got up to 
uh, 20 million people. Cityville got up to 20 million people playing every single day. Farmville peaked at 32 million people playing every day. Uh, Cityville got up to 20 million people playing every day. Um, oh, there, you know, there was one other element I forgot that was part of the perfect storm. It was Zynga as a company. Zynga wasn't a traditional game company at the time. It was more of an internet company that knew how to do marketing, run ads on Facebook, red ads, Google ads and everything that got into making games. And so, you know, that's why companies like Electronic Arts and everybody else had trouble getting into Facebook games later because they were all coming from the traditional game space. And and really Zynga was part of that. I'm curious. So what was the, what was the business model for Zynga with Farmville? Where was the, what was the revenue stream when you first put it out? Sure. Sure. Um, the, think of it like this, um, and it, it's really become the business model uh, for all games now, including mobile games. Uh, we knew that um, you know, only 2 to 3% of the players playing the game paid money. All right? And so what we had to do is balance the equation of acquiring players and, um, have, you know, and, and, and running the game in a budget where only that few small percentage of players paid. We also knew that some of those, you know, like there's a tiny, you know, fraction of a percentage of players that paid a lot of money, right? You know, um, and some people have heard about, the, you know, the idea of whales, you know, casinos yes. talk yes. about whales, right? And in, in game business, they talk about whales, people who spent, you know, in, in some cases, it's crazy, tens of thousands of dollars, or, you know, uh, I think in Mafia Wars, they'd heard about people spending a million dollars, right? Just, you know, people that have the money, just that's how they choose to spend it, right? So that's kind of how the business model is made for all free-to-play games, which is, uh, you know, count on a small fraction of your players actually paying. And that, the number that you can get to pay and how much they pay each day determines your budget for acquiring more players, running a team size to keep the game going. Because it was really games as a service, right? Every day, the team's working, continue making upgrades, keeping it running, um, adding new features, and then it all has to be funded by the, the players who are actually paying. So there's play. a small percentage of people who are willing to pay for the the thrill of the competition. Is that what it is? It's competition. Um, and, you know, there's there's like, in some cases, like uh, Mafia Wars, there's definitely a leaderboard that people wanted right. to be number one in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a competition that was in Farmville, like who had the coolest farm or the most cows. You know, it's mostly friendly competition right. at that point. But what I saw is even with friendly competitions, that would drive a lot of people to, you know, uh, play more, uh, buy stuff, and decorate more. So it's, it's a little bit like keeping right. up with the yeah. Joneses. You got thirty right? million people so, every yeah. day yeah. that that are kind of seeing Europe there in the leaderboard. Yeah, or they go visit. We encourage people to visit other people's farms or cities, and they go look at it and say, "Wow, they got yeah, that new thing. I want that." Right? That's really cool. Now we also found a mechanism that people would pay for time. And, you know, in this case, if you, if you have a, a, you know, a, a crop, a pumpkin or something that's going to take 24 hours to grow, well, you could buy some miracle Grow and grow it instantly, <laughs> right? And that's the other. So if, for people who are impatient, right. they could also pay. It also sounds like it probably separated the haves and the have-nots in terms in, of who had the resources to buy the miracle like Grow. Yeah, yeah. So what we tried to do, and, and that's a good point, what we tried to do is always allow you to have fun and keep playing even if you didn't spend money. That sounds counterintuitive, right? Like, well, if, if you have people who are paying, aren't the other people just taking up space? Well, if, you have a, if it's a social game and you're visiting people's farms and you're seeing cool stuff that they do, well, then obviously the more players you have, the better. That's kind of like, uh, like you know, telephone systems, right? The more people who have telephones, the more valuable it is, right? So um, we tried to, wherever we could, and this is in most cases, give people the option. Well, if you don't want to pay, you can grind. That's what the term I think came out of MMOs a long time ago, which is basically show up every day, do a bunch of tasks again and again and again, and work really hard, and you can still earn a lot of the same cool stuff. Because, so, you know, uh, Armfield was actually really big in India. Uh, at the time, uh, there was a controversy because <laughs> we we released flags of the world and and you know just by just pure administrative uh, oversight we forgot to put the Ooh. India flag into the game. <laughs> Boy, we heard from <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know that that's a situation where their economy at the time 
2009-2010 is nowhere sure. near what it is today and um, nor were games as accepted but um, so we had a lot of players there that didn't pay yeah. they just love playing yeah games. the the, uh, the entertainment factor the social factor uh, is a, is a very big deal I get that uh, yeah so you mentioned India let's let's shift to India a little bit so you, you left Zynga and different culture you know yeah. EA and Zynga are completely different cultures of course as you said, Zynga was more of an internet company that got yeah. into games. So now you uh, now you move on from yep. Zynga and you decide to go to India with Moonfrog. Tell us about what was what prompted you to do that, yeah. and, and uh, how much time were you spending in India? Yeah. So uh, first off, I I was spending about half my time there, which um, is you know it's kind of crazy. It was supposed to be first you know a couple weeks every quarter, but then uh, I just got more and more into it. Um, I saw more of an opportunity and just ended up spending uh, basically half my time there for two years, just under half time, but but uh, definitely really close to it. Um, the thing, so well, quick story: when we first started Farmville, um, the game grew up so quickly. We didn't have in- infrastructure to handle the growth. I mean, I literally released Farmville, and four days later, we had a million players a day. And so at that time, we had a team of about ten people. And suddenly, like, oh my god, how are we going to do this? Right? And a good point. The company rallied around it. But as our team, we were still, myself included, up all hours of the night watching the servers to make sure they didn't crash. Right? Um, it's sort of like we. Some of us developed like a sixth sense, which like we wake up at three in the morning, and go, I sense a disturbance of the force. Wait a minute! And sure enough, the server was down. Then we'd have to start the call. You know, the call chain to get the right server engineer to wake up and and you know hit some buttons. Well, one of the things I said is, hey, do we have anybody? that knows somebody in China or India or somewhere around the world that they could watch these, just watch the servers for us overnight. And they said, you know, we do. We have some people in Bangalore, which is what actually started Zynga India. Now, why is that relevant? Well, because the guys that went to work at Moonfrock were some of the very early Zynga India folks, right? So they were part of Zynga for a while. And the move there is maybe a little, little, less cloudy when you realize, yes, the, the whole industry, you know, mobile in India was just taken off. The culture is radically different, but we had some common thinking and understanding about making uh, games. And that came from our Zynga experience. So that was, that was the thing that kind of like opened the door. It's like, Hey, we work together at, at Zynga. We've now started a company called Moonfrog. Can you come talk to us? And I went for some early discussions. And what I saw is so many people there just like, urgent to, to learn how to build games um just just you know uh, the kind of the kind of excitement you want as a leader because like you know just right. to show us we, we really want to do this we're really excited um us i gotta say a lot of game developers right. in the us are kind of jaded right yeah it's India, curiosity curiosity is something that's so, you know often hard to teach and when you see it when people are curious and they want to learn well yeah. you go for it they uh yeah that's true so they so i saw that now that that's exciting but then also um, at that time in 2015, late 2015, early 2016, uh, people in India were just starting to get their first smartphones, right? So while we'd had them for five, you know, uh, so, you know, eight years with the iPhone introduction early on and, you know, all through the different iterations, people in India were still on like the old Nokia feature phones, right? And so I looked at that and when 100 million people are getting their first smartphone, in 100 million people in a year getting their very first smartphone ever, it just looks like an incredible business opportunity, right? This is a this is a point where you can get in sort of at the, at the ground floor of a great booming industry with a great set of people who are very excited to learn how to make games. So that's what, that's what was, that was that's what the so, attraction was. Uh, was the culture of Moonfrog being a splinter group from Zynga, how did that differ from the culture at Zynga? Um, there was... It was well. Let me tell you how it was the same. A lot of the product management, PM culture was the same. Numbers get uh, metrics and analytics and work off of that. But then there was also the understanding that um, we have to make games that that work in India. And the games that work in India won't necessarily be the same ones that we made, you know, at Zynga for uh, you know for the U.S. and the rest of the world. So um, I think there was also a much more human. Um, human sort of point of view or philosophy but by, by by that i mean more caring about the people um really um you know people and families took priority right and and you know that kind of uh, very 
I don't, I don't want to say family-oriented environment, but people-oriented environment. Now, I, no judgment. I think that's actually part of the Indian culture. So it's kind of like they were just taking what they learned from Zynga and making it part of who they were. As and uh, from and the games you, you worked on there were more for the mobile market at that time? Yeah, there were mobile games. You know, but because you know, as we got one of the things that happened at, at Zynga is we rode the Facebook wave of gaming a lot. You know, just from start to finish almost, and we missed out on the mobile games side of things. And so the last game I made at Zynga was actually a uh, military strategy game for mobile, which right. kind of going back to the roots of EA. But by that point in India, it was all you know the mobile environment was a place to be. So we made uh, made a couple of games. One was a, a strategy game based upon a big IP called Bahubali. Um, and the way to look at that IP, not a lot of people outside of India know it, but it was like Lord of the Rings was for the rest of the world. That's uh-huh. what Bahubali was for India. Um, so it was yeah. a big, big deal. It was pretty cool. And then um, we also made a, a, a people kind of game uh, based on one of the Ali famous Bhatt, actresses right. there, Alia Bhatt. And that was, yeah, so that was fun yeah. too. Two radically different types of games Very cool. out of the same studio. So let's, uh, as we wind this down a little bit, I'm curious, just some of the takeaways. You're, you're consulting now. You're in Dallas. You're consulting. Are you doing any, any, uh, any what else are you yeah. working on? Uh, being, being a dad there with my go. kids. <laughs> so I have four kids. The oldest two are about to move out of the house and go to college very soon. And all those seven years of going back and forth for San Francisco and two years going back and forth to India, yeah. I missed a lot of time at home. And by the way, going back and forth to San Francisco, it basically, I was home on weekends, but not every weekend uh, when I worked in San Francisco. And so yeah, it took a toll. Uh, yeah, I missed a lot. Uh, but doing that, yeah, it did, it did take a toll. So uh, doing some, you know, I don't, I hate to call it makeup time, but just really enjoying uh hugging my son and my daughter, my third son and my daughter each morning when they wake up, right? And driving her to voice lessons and, and to her play rehearsals and, you know, hanging out with him, watching movies and stuff. So cool. that that's good. Um, that And that's it. I mean, I'm also, you know, I have a hobby making music because I always right. got to be creative, um, getting back to that because that was one of my loves from early on. And, and I'm helping my wife too as we we're getting back into real estate investing. We did some investing early on. Now we're getting back to it, and so yeah, it's a pretty full life. But uh, yeah, I still got a bit of games in there. And you know, I see this as a fallow period, yes. right? You know, farmers let the fields kind of go fallow to recharge. Very cool. That's kind of what. So it just uh, by way of bringing some closure on the leadership part, some of your you know takeaways yeah. on leadership. If you want to give advice to your younger self or to other folks who are just coming up in the field now. What are some of your leadership takeaways? Oh yeah, you know, good point. <laughs> um, for and I can mostly around games, but I think anything on products. You know, it always comes down to the product. I know um, early on in games, people go, "Well, our game didn't succeed because it wasn't marketed correctly." Now, what your your game wasn't marketed a lot because it wasn't a good game, right? So it comes down to the product. But the key piece on that is the product's a reflection of the team. So. If the product's not working, if it's late, if it's not fun, take a look at what's going on inside your team. Because you know, I've literally seen uh, this one team was very angry that they had to make this product. And when you loaded it up, it felt angry. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the craziest thing. Or if the team's bored and tired and doesn't have any good ideas, you'll see that in the game as well. So that, that's a key one there. Um, I think the other one is, and I might have talked to you about this because this was something I learned from the guys at Westwood, the idea of a craftsman versus mm-hmm. an artiste. Um, and especially in creative business where, and, and the way I, you know, I learned it and describe it is, you know, an artist has an idea that he wants to get out from inside of himself and give it to the world. You know, Van, Van Gogh was an artist, right? Visions that were all his own, totally unique. Now, problem right. with that is nobody bought it, right? It was, a, it was a, a, you know, a very small audience of one, I think. Someone bought one of his paintings, but still very important in the art world. The other side is a craftsman who looks around at the at customers of the audience and says, what do you like and what do you need? What do you want? And builds an amazing one of those. All right. So I tend to be the craftsman side of things because, um, well, early on in my game making career, I was an artiste. I had ideas. 
Nobody else thought of them. I right. made them. I thought I was cool because they were unique, right. but uh, I couldn't feed my family. Right? So I shifted to that. And you know, you just got to be, yeah. be aware of what side of the table you're on. Um, another one is the missionary versus mercenary, right? It's okay if you're in it just to make the money, get in, get out. I know uh, I saw a lot of that in San Francisco. You know, let's disrupt this industry. We don't care anything about the industry except we can make a billion dollars at it versus uh, sort of my more approach, which is more of a, a missionary approach. We want to make the best experience for you know, our players. We want to have the best culture on a team. We want to be the best team at doing these things, right? So I think those are those are some pretty key ones right there. I wish the ones yeah. I wish I would have known when I was starting out. Well, just a life of Mark. I mean, I love your stories. I love the the history, the background, the whole thing. And I love the okay. fact that you're hanging out with your family in Dallas and uh you know, in the in the creative fallow period, but that will not last too long. Yeah, I know it only lasts for almost two years. So <laughs> it's sort of like an itch, right? It just comes back and you know cool. I can't ignore it. But yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed our talk too. Uh, and by the way, some of the lessons you you shared during our time together at EA still, still I still share with teams. You know, I mentioned that one about uh, you know yeah. the breathing in and breathing out, inhale and exhale. That's my uh, tell teams that all the one time. of my big things is the breathing organization. So I'm always interested when people are interested in hearing about that. I love talking yeah. about that. So that's a that's a true conspiracy. It was people breathe together. That's the true conspiracy. And and uh, with team, you know, with teams. Oh, it was wow. something that, that the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu said many thousands of years ago that uh, when, when, the, when the goal was, when the work was done and the goal was accomplished, people said, we did this ourselves. And that's how he defined leadership. So that's what it sounds yeah. like here. All right, my good man. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, we'll stay in touch. Cheers. Okay. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.